Amen. Amen. I don't know of any doctrine in Scripture that has a greater impact on how we live the Christian life than the doctrine of the love of Christ for his people. No doctrine in my mind, no truth, has more impact on how we live as Christians than the love of Jesus Christ. It's often been the mistake throughout the history of the church for God's people to fall into the trap to think that it's the law of Christ that actually makes the difference. And when that takes place, we begin to look within. We continue to take our spiritual pulse and see how we're doing. And we begin to imagine that it's going to be by the law, the law, the law that we're going to really live a godly and holy life. But the law was never designed to do that. The law can expose sin. It can tell us what God hates and what he loves. It it can tell us what pleases him and what displeases him. It can bring conviction, but it cannot sanctify us. It cannot. It has no power to bring us to the point where we are living on in the strength of his might and in the joy of the Lord. The love of Christ constrains me. That's what Paul said. Not the law of Christ, but the love of Christ constrains me. The law and its terrors do but harden. All the while they work alone. Tis the sense of blood-bought pardon that can melt the heart of stone. The climax of Paul's prayer, the climax of it, in Ephesians 3 for that church, was that they should comprehend the depth, the length, the breadth, and the height of God's love. The big question is to what end? He's praying that they would increase in their knowledge of, comprehending that greatness of his love, but there was a purpose in it. Why was he praying that? He says that, and that's a word of purpose, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled. That word in the original means filled to the brim. And with what? All the fullness of God. To be honest, I cannot get my head around that truth. All the fullness of God. Of course, it's not referring to those incommunicable attributes of God, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, those things will never be ours. But to those attributes of God that can be ours, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. He puts it in another way in Galatians 5 verse 22. You know that well. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. That's being filled with the fullness of God. I imagine... You want to be filled with that fullness. We often lament how little fruit there is. Oh, it's love that's there. Yes, we have to say it, but it seems to be so small. Joy, we know there's far more than we're tasting. 
Have you ever been in that spot in life where you say to your spouse, Honey, it's been a long, long time since I really felt that deep joy of God. Peace. All around and within seems to be raging at times. The goodness and the meekness and the gentleness. Sometimes, you know, men were like bulls in a china shop. Rough. And the Lord Jesus Christ was always so gentle with his people. We need to see that prayer brought to pass in our lives that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. So, the key to being filled with all the fullness of God, this this fruitful Christian life is knowing and experiencing, according to what Paul's praying here, the love of Christ. This is the key. I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. Comprehend his love that you might be filled with his fullness. You might have abundance of love and joy and peace and all those Christ-like features in our life. It's all about grasping and believing the gospel of grace. Therefore, it's no surprise that one of the oldest tactics of the devil, his constant effort is to tear down the people of God. And by doing that, to cause those those gospel doctrines that are so critical to how we live the Christian life to bury them out of sight or to bring so much confusion around them that we don't draw the benefit from them that we could. When there is confusion and error and ignorance on Christ's gospel, you'll find that real joy is hard to come by. And that love grows weak. And peace is really disturbed. Because the very gospel itself, that gospel of grace and and all of its movings is that which brings those things to pass in our life. And that gospel advances and our understanding grows of how great this love is and how great this grace is. Then the devil has to flee. We have power. And we resist him. And if we resist the devil, the promise is he will flee from us. You and I need to see more of that in our lives, more of the devil fleeing and not thinking, thinking that it's just too hard and that we can never attain. It's for somebody else. It's for the preacher. It's for the elders. It's for somebody else, but it's not for the average Joe, so to speak, in the pew, but the average Joe. The, 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 the normal lay Christian can be filled with all the fullness of God. It's not, it's not just for preachers. He was writing to normal members of the church at Ephesus. There's always been, and perhaps now more than ever, therefore, a tremendous need to have a clear biblical understanding of the gospel of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. My text this morning turns our attention to the very heart of that gospel of redemption 
the greatest revelation of God's love that you will ever see. Verse 24 is my text. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know of any other gospel truth that has been the target of Satan's attacks more than the doctrine of justification. That fact alone should tell us something of how vital that doctrine is. When it's been so much the target of Satan. When you find, I'm afraid, far too often, and I don't live here, of course, I don't know how it is in Ulster, but I know how it is in my country, that when you would go to many, many places, preach on the doctrine of justification, the people check out. That tells me a lot how successful Satan has been on burying the heart of the gospel itself. Perhaps that is why no other gospel doctrine has been given a more concentrated attention in scripture than this doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. The book of Romans is the longest New Testament epistle, which is actually a treatise from start to finish on the doctrine of justification. It was this truth, as you men well know, that was the heart cry of the Reformation. And this is, we call it Reformation Month. At three critical junctures in his life, God used this text of scripture to transform the life of Martin Luther. The just shall live by faith. Yes, because we have been justified by faith, we have eternal life. We we go from death unto life, but it's not just about we have eternal life. It's about living, you see. The just shall live by faith. The justified one shall really live by faith. That's justification by faith, therefore, has everything to do with how we live. How you and I live the Christian life. How we live as husbands in our homes. How we treat our family. How we live in this church. How we live. How we live out there in the world amongst the lost has everything to do with that. Not just about eternal life. We'll we'll get onto that in the last message, but it's about how we live now. So from this text, I, I want to speak to you, brethren, for the time I have remaining, and I don't know what that is, but I'll go till I'm done, and hopefully we'll get enough time for everybody else to get done today. What I want to preach on is living in light of our justification. Living in light of our justification. That's the topic. And I want to deal with that by asking four questions. I I realize I'm not going to say anything I imagine that you haven't heard before. This is old stuff. But my, it's great stuff. And we have to keep hearing it. I mean, you want to change? You, You want your life to change? This is how it changes. It's hearing the gospel. Over and over and over again. Never ever grow weary of hearing the gospel. Question number one. Why do we need to be justified? 
Why do we need to be justified? There's two answers to that question. Number one, simply, we are sinful. We inherited Adam's sinful nature. You know Romans 5.12, where by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death hath passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You know that Adam fell in the garden, perfect environment, but he fell deep into the depths of sin. Of course, all of mankind that came from his loins fell with him. The result, well, we're all born with fallen sinful natures. In fact, it's not just that we were born with it, but we were conceived in sin, David says. In sin, my mother conceived me. The moment the egg was fertilized and there was life, there was sin. That moment. Then we eventually were born, and we were born sinners. What does that mean? It means that we're born totally depraved. And I mean total. Our mind is totally depraved. Totally corrupted by sin. That's why, because of that depravity, lost sinners can't think rightly. They can't. It's impossible. They cannot understand the word of God. It's like talking to a wall. They can't get it. It's not just that they won't. They won't, but they can't. Their mind is corrupted and their, their heart is depraved. Their, their affections, what they love and what they hate, have been corrupted by sin. So they love evil and they hate righteousness. That's how we came into this world. And of course the will, that which desires and longs, that what, what it leans toward, it's corrupted by sin. They don't want it. But more than that, it means there is a total inability that has gripped everyone who comes into this world. By that, I mean there is nothing they can do to fix the sin problem. Nothing. There's not, Fanny Crosby had this wrong <laughs> in one of her hymns, I forget what. There's like a little spark that's there waiting to be fanned. It's not true. There is no little spark there. I mean... Ephesians 2, we're dead in sin. Dead means dead. It doesn't mean there's, we're sick. That's, you know, Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. There's a little, little bit there. It just needs God's grace to come in and give it a start. That's utter nonsense. That's, that's error. We don't have any power. No. And, of course, we're unrighteous. That means without any righteousness. And we are positively wicked Positively wicked. In fact, you know the text. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's an ugly word used there. Filthy. That's how we come into this world. But our sin problem only gets worse because our sin nature acts upon this corrupt will and this corrupt mind and this corrupt heart. And so we practice sin. It's, it's not just that we have no interest in God or in his word, but we actively oppose God and his word. We're enemies in our minds by wicked works. Our sins are weapons that we take up against God. We fight. We're not 
until we're justified. We are not on God's side. We are fighting in the trenches for Satan. Warring against our maker. And love to have it so. We turn to our own ways. And we lie. And we hate. And we fight. And we loathe righteousness. And we loathe holiness. That's. One half of why we need to be justified. The other half is this. We need to be justified because God is holy. We are sinful, but God is holy. The one attribute, the one attribute of God that Isaiah in chapter 6 of his prophecy heard about when he saw the angels flying round about the throne was not his grace, it was not his omnipotence, it was not his wisdom, it was what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You'll find some of the Puritans maintaining strongly that the greatest attribute of God is his holiness. Everything about him is holy. His wisdom is holy. His love is holy. His grace is holy. I believe it's Hodge who said that it's the crown of the Godhead, his holiness. Because he's holy and righteous, he has to be just. Therefore, he has declared that all sin will be punished. And that punishment is death. Because the wages of sin, you know it, is death. The punishment that's meted out by God's justice, this death is everlasting. These shall go away, Christ said, into everlasting punishment. Matthew 25, verse 46. It's true that sin, and you know this well as well, sin brings punishment in this life. The way of transgressors is hard. The, 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 the wicked are like the troubled sea. It has no rest. There's constant agitation. No peace, saith my God, to the wicked. But it's the next life where men will discover how holy God is, how much he actually hates sin. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress when Pilgrim comes into the interpreter's house, these various things, Bunyan uses that to teach various truths about the gospel. He finds this man in an iron cage and he asks, what's this about? This man in the iron cage, there's no door, there's no way of getting out. And the man says, in answer, I was once a fair professor. I professed to be a Christian, but he turned away from it all. And now I'm in this iron cage, and he says, eternity, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? Everlasting Punishment. It was Watson, I believe, the Puritan Thomas Watson who said, it's that word lasting that breaks the heart. There's no end to it. So here is the state of every sinner, fallen and depraved, unrighteous in the sight of God, condemned, condemned by God's law, an enemy of God, guilty as guilty can be, and totally unable to fix the problem doesn't even want 
the problem fixed. Oh yes, he doesn't like the effects of his sin. The drunkard, it's broken his bank account, it's ruined his family. He, he, he wishes it would be different, but he still loves his drink. If he's going to be saved from God's hell, if you and I were ever going to be saved from God's hell, if God is ever going to accept us and bring us to heaven, he will need to become that sinner as righteous as God himself. This is why we need to be justified. But I know I didn't tell you anything you didn't already know. Good to have a refresher course on where we were when God stepped in. Question number two. What does it mean to be justified? Again, I believe I could go into many a church in the States and ask that question and the answer wouldn't be correct. I would get a blank stare. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified, quite simply, is to be pronounced righteous by God. In, in this, what I will call never to be repeated and never to be reversed, act of God. He declares that sinner righteous and places him in a permanent state of righteousness, of, of, of legal perfection in view of his law. A permanent state of legal perfection in view of his holy law. That's the only answer to the truth stated in the previous verse. For all have sinned. All are guilty. All have been condemned by God. But that state is fully and forever changed when a sinner is pronounced righteous by God. Allow me to point out that this change that takes place in justification is not uh, any, any inward moral change that takes place in the sinner. While there are certain things inwardly that definitely will change following this legal pronouncement of God where he places us in this permanent state in his sight, this is an act of God that takes place outside of the sinner, not inside of him. That is critical. An act of God that takes place outside of the sinner, not inside of the sinner. What God has done is to change and change radically our legal standing in his eyes. In his eyes we were guilty and condemned and vile, awful, wicked, but now it's all changed by an act of God. I pronounce you righteous. I know what you were. But from here on out, I'm going to treat you as perfectly righteous. I will always do that and that will never change. This law will not 
I'm almost going to get ahead of myself, but I, I want to say it now. This law will not and it cannot condemn us. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And I believe that is a, a truth that so many of the Lord's people are not enjoying. But I'll say more in a moment. This is true of every child of God. Every believer is equally justified. You are as justified in God's sight as the Apostle Paul, as is Abraham. I'll go beyond that. You're as righteous in God's sight as Christ himself. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Paul will go on in that same chapter to throw down the gauntlet, if I can put it like that, to any who would want to say otherwise. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Third question. How is a sinner justified? Being justified, our text, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That There are two things I want you to, to see. One is the ground of our justification. The second is the means. Those two things are often confused, mixed up in the mind. Ground and means. The ground of a sinner's justification in the first place. Upon what ground? Um, what's the basis upon which God can, can take this act? And pronounce someone who is unjust to be just. Who is unrighteous to now you're righteous. It's the ground for that act. That guilty sinners are no longer guilty sinners. But are free from condemnation. And in his eyes they have satisfied all of the law's demands. That's why the law can say nothing to us. That's why we can refuse guilt. Charges of accusation, the accusation of the, of, of the accuser and slander of the brethren. How can we do that? How can we do that when even other Christians seek to use guilt to heap upon us and bring our sin to our faces? It may or may not be true. But you've got to be able to deal with that. Or you will be brought down. Let me tell you, so many of the problems that occur in marriages... You want to know what's going on? Guilt. Failure. You did this wrong. You did that wrong. You're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. And no one, brothers, no one can live in the peaceful state of mind when there's constantly being beaten down with guilt and guilt and guilt. And there's just an abysmal lack to understand this doctrine right here. How do you deal with the guilt? There's only one way. Justification. Let me say first what it's not. Our, our righteous standing before God is not grounded on a righteousness that is wrought within us. I know you don't I know you know that, but I, I don't know that we are really all that aware that that's that's the the trap we fall into. We begin to think that it's our real standing before God is based upon our, our righteousness wrought within us. 
uh, a.k.a. holiness. Because what, what, what do you start doing when you see when the devil roars loud with the accusations and how you failed? You failed as a dad. You ever felt that way? I know you all don't say amen over here, but you ever felt that way? I failed as a dad. I failed as a husband. I haven't loved my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Too often I've been harsh and and not gentle. I've not been the the godly father that lead my family as I ought to. All, All that could be very well true. How do you deal with the guilt? You see, if it's the case of, well, because I am such a failure, maybe I'm not a Christian. You've now lapsed into thinking that the ground of justification is your performance and how well you do or don't do. And it's a downward spiral from there. I'm referring to any righteousness that is wrought within us by the Holy Spirit as a means of finding acceptance with God. Convinced that he accepts me, that he loves me, he's forever for me, he's not going to throw me aside because of my failures. That's what I'm talking about. Even if we were made perfect in this life, I'm talking about you know within and our life is just perfect. And the possibility of sinning Ever again has been eradicated if that would actually happen. It would not answer the need that we have as guilty sinners because we have a guilty past. I need something to take care of not only my present and my future, but my past sins as well. So if you are all of a sudden, by the wave of a wand, you're now perfect, you're sinless, and you can go on. That is not the ground of your acceptance with God. All it takes is one sin to condemn me. Just one little sin in my past and it is over. I am guilty and I am condemned to hell forever. Paul spends two whole chapters expounding the truth that justification can never be obtained by any good work that we could do. Two whole chapters. There weren't chapters, but in other words, this was a big part of his letter. And it had to have been, of course, because the Holy Spirit knew it needed to be emphasized because that's the tendency of his people to think that way, that I am accepted by God because of some level of holiness I've obtained. It's utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. How could I ever come to the throne of God with boldness, if that's the case? You see... Our obedience, and I'm not opening up the door for sin in any way in saying this, but our obedience will never be perfect. Don't we know that? And it also doesn't deal with the actual transgressions of the law that we have committed. It can't fix the past. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. We read that in verse 20. Galatians 3 verse 11, no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. And I say again, how vital is this truth to how we live the Christian life? It's when the child of God sees justification in terms of something done in him 
instead of an act of God that takes place outside of him, that he becomes defeated and frustrated. When a Christian sins, when he feels this flesh rising up within him, when he feels, as Newton described it, the hidden evils of his heart, his first thought is, am I even a Christian? The devil becomes at that point in time a cheerleader along those lines. But it's right there that he is confusing God's act of justification with God's work of sanctification, which our brother will deal with next hour. When God justifies a sinner, that declaration has nothing to do with his work of sanctification as far as his acceptance with God. Nothing to do with it. It's an act of God and therefore an action of man can never undo what God has enacted. Can't be undone. So our righteous standing before God is grounded upon the, the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. That's the ground of it. His perfect obedience. And by Christ's perfect obedience, I'm referring to both his active and his passive obedience. Hang with me. His active and his passive obedience. We need both to be justified in God's sight. Active obedience. That's Christ's perfect obedience to the entirety of God's law. Every jot and tittle. Perfect obedience. That's what the law demands for anyone who is to be considered righteous before God. We can't do it. You know that. Born sinners, you're not going to live perfectly. That's why Christ became the surety. He became the guarantee or what these people could not do. These people you have given me from before the foundation of the world, they can't obey your law. But I will take upon myself human flesh. I will enter that world and I will keep, Father, every one of your laws on their behalf. I will earn that righteousness that they could never earn. I will do it perfectly. And so he was the sinless son. Never failed. Brothers, that's our only hope. Because we fail every day. Thought, word, and deed every day. But that's not enough. The law of God also demands that every sin be punished. Death. The wages of sin is death. That's the passive obedience of Christ. Christ offering himself up as the payment for the debt that our sin incurred before God. A sin debt that we could not pay. And the law says that sin must be punished. It must be punished with everlasting death. And so we know there's no better, really no more concise definition of this doctrine that's found in our shorter catechism. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ 
imputed to us. That all-important word is imputed. Impute is a legal term. It means to put to the account of. In an act of justification, and that act that takes place outside of us, God takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it to our account. Righteousness given to us. He accounts us righteous on the ground of Christ's obedience to every jot and tittle of the law. It as if is as if we are righteous as Christ and we kept all the law of God and we did in Jesus Christ. You know, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Chosen in Christ before the world's foundation. He's always dealt with us in Christ. I was first introduced to the doctrines of grace, also known as Calvinism. Freshman at Bob Jones University, which is not a Calvinistic school. (laughs) But I was working in a hospital. I was a... I won't tell you what it was, but I was kind of a tech. And there was a male nurse, and uh, I'm just fresh out of a bad life, and I'm there. And he, he handed me this book by A.W. Pink called The Attributes of God. Sure, I read it. I've not read anything like it before. I'm, I'm, I remember being in my bunk bed in the dorms and reading this book. And somewhere, along, somewhere along the line, it said, Pink said, God never accepts you for who you are. I was mad. I was so mad because I had been looking for someone who would accept me with all my issues, with all my problems. Warts and all would just accept me. And here was somebody saying, he doesn't accept you for who you are. It wasn't until later understood that no, he doesn't accept me, and he can never accept me for who I am. He can only accept me in Jesus Christ. Oh, how my eyes were opened when I first heard and understood the doctrine of justification. It's not my trying my best that I get accepted, because I fall and I fail. The fruits of the Spirit aren't anywhere near what they could be or what they should be. But that does not change my acceptance in the sight of God. It's not enough that a sinner is imputed with Christ's righteousness for him to be justified. The law demands all of the sins be punished in order for all those sins to be pardoned. Punishment. What did God do because of this great love wherewith he loved us from eternity? Because I have chosen for reasons known only to me, I have chosen to love them And they're going to be separated from me for all eternity if the sin problem isn't fixed. I will send my son. He'll take upon himself their flesh. And I will punish him for all of their sins. 
I will cause him to go through the equivalency of eternity in hell upon a Roman cross so I can justify these unrighteous sinners. Punishment has to be handed out. I'm talking now about the atonement. The blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Never grow weary of hearing about the blood atonement. It's only on that ground that we are viewed as righteous in the eyes of God. As one old Puritan said of of Christ's blood, it so covers our sin that the wrath of God cannot find it. What answer do I have? What else can I say? When the accuser wars of ills that I have done, I know them all in thousands more, Jehovah findeth none. Imputed. Not just Christ's righteousness to us, but there's a counter-imputation going on. All of our sin, all of our unrighteousness is imputed to Jesus Christ. If I can borrow the words of the old Scottish preacher Hugh Martin in 2 Corinthians 5.17. For God hath made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. Who knew no righteousness that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I want you to note something. Paul is not saying that Christ was made a sinner. Let that thought never come into your mind. If it does, dispense it immediately. Never utter those words. I've heard preachers say it and I am aghast. It does not say he was made a sinner. He was made sin for us. It's a legal transaction. He was treated as our sin laid upon him. Not made a sinner. And you hear, I, I, I've heard preachers go on to say he was there on the cross. He was made a murderer for us. He was made an adulterer for us. He was made a homosexual for us. I don't personally know, understand how the words come out of their mouth. It's very specific. He was made sin for us. All of our unrighteousness, all of our filth, all of our impure thoughts, all of our deeds, all of our vile ways, all of our backslidings, all of our prayerlessness, all of our pride, all of our self-centeredness, all of our coldness was laid completely on Jesus Christ. And punished. So that God would not have to forsake us. He forsook his son. Why would he do that? Why? Why? Because he loves us. So Christ is our surety, undertook to do all, all that was necessary in order to secure 
this righteousness for his people. Secure it. Not simply make it possible. The death of Christ on the cross was not in order to simply make salvation a possibility. It made it a secure thing. He accomplished redemption. Now, that's the ground. Briefly, what are the means? By grace, it says in our text. Justified us freely by his grace. Paul's going to go on to great lengths in the next two chapters to show how justification cannot be obtained by works, as I pointed out. It's an act of God that's grounded in his love for his elect who were chosen in Christ. So the hymn writer would say, not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not all my sighs and prayers or tears, all my fastings, none of those things are going to actually make me acceptable to God and righteous. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. All for these cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Our sin is too great for us to deal with. And that's exactly why Paul goes on to say at the end of Romans chapter 5. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where sin reached its high water mark in our lives. The grace of God came in like a flood and overflowed it all. That's grace. It's also by faith. That's laid out in verses 25 to 28. The Shorter Catechism ends that definition of justification by declaring that this righteousness is received by faith alone. Saving faith is a gift from God wrought by the Holy Spirit in the heart at regeneration. You cannot create faith any more than you can create repentance. Faith and repentance are the gifts of the Holy Spirit and they are given to us as gifts the moment we are brought from death unto life. Then we are enabled to believe and we are enabled to repent. Until that happens, you can't repent and you won't repent and you can't believe and you won't believe. It's like telling a dead man, get up. Get up. You can't hear anything, you can't do anything. So the new birth is needed. But when that happens, there is faith. There is repentance. And enables this faith given, enables that sinner who is dead in sin now to believe anything that God says in this word. And trust in it. Lean upon it. However feeble it might be, however small it might be, like a grain of mustard seed, it still does that job that's necessary. Justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Saving faith, of course, because of that, always has Christ as the object. That means that faith is not that which saves us. Faith does not save us. It is Christ that saves us. Faith is simply the means. It is simply the vehicle, if I can put it like that, that brings Christ's righteousness to us. It's not our faith that makes us acceptable to God. Hallelujah for that truth. But it's Christ's righteousness received by faith that makes us acceptable to God. Horatius Bonner wrote, faith is not our physician. It only brings us to the physician. 
You need not tremble, therefore, because you feel your faith is small. It's Christ that saves. It's his righteousness that makes us perfect, not the degree of our faith. Fourth and final question. What are the blessings of being justified? Well, you've been hearing it all along, scattered, peppered throughout the message. In the first place, we have acceptance with God. We're accepted in the beloved. We, we have peace with God. No war, no fighting, no war between us. God's not angry with us. His wrath has been removed because sin has been removed. Now, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can grieve him. Grieve not the Holy Ghost. That's what Paul said. You can grieve him. But you'll never know the wrath of God. Never. That's reserved for those who reject Christ and his gospel. They will know the wrath of God throughout all eternity. The wrath, John calls in Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb. Not you. It's not just the absence of wrath, you know. I'm, I'm glad for that. But he actually delights in us. Think about that. I, I don't know how much delight you take in yourself. Especially when you've grieved the Lord. You've, you've wandered away because that's our proneness to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, you don't feel so good, but you know what the... The fact of his righteousness assures us he always takes delight in us. Oh, he doesn't like the sin. He hates the sin. But he always takes delight in us. Why is that? We have Christ's righteousness and he must always delight in Christ's righteousness. We're in our, he is our living head. We're in him. And he always must take delight in his people. What's the Old Testament term? I'll no longer call you forsaken, but the name I have for you is Hephzibah. My delight is in thee. You know, I include myself in this. I look out on you, Lot. The Lord delights in us. He actually rejoices over us with joy. Can I say it humbly? He is thrilled today as you sit there. You might have failed miserably this past week in some way. Maybe you and your wife had a big falling out. You had angry words for each other. Maybe you're really harsh with the kids and you felt so badly afterward. Maybe your thoughts wonder where they shouldn't have wondered. You feel so dirty, so down, so defeated. Hephzibah, I delight in you. Your falls and your failings are not going to change my delight in you. That's the gospel of grace. I fear that too often God's people are, are afraid. They are afraid to embrace grace. I am not an antinomian. If you think that, you don't know me. 
But I know one thing. God's people need to understand this is the gospel of grace. It's not a performance-based religion. I'm not accepted for how much I've prayed, how long I've prayed, how much I've fasted, how many hours I've stayed on my knees, or how much I've memorized of God's word. All those things are needful, but that's not why I'm accepted. That's not why you're accepted. It's for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in our stead that we could never do. It never changes. We also have access to God. Access. The devil will tell you otherwise. Yeah, when you fail, he brings your sin. You can't pray. No point in praying. God's not going to listen to you. But he is a liar from the beginning. He wants to keep you from even getting to your knees and beat you down to, to your nothing. At that point in time, brothers, you've got to come back to this truth. Because I have a great high priest who has satisfied all of God's law in my stead. He's kept the perfect life. I failed, but he didn't. My God tells me to come to his throne with boldness, with confidence. That I might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. At all times, I have access to him. No matter where I am in my life, I can go to God and know And know that they will hear my faintest cry. Remember, he delights in you. Loves to see you. Loves to hear you. You believe that? Hmm? Really? Oh, I know it's orthodoxy and you're supposed to believe it, but do you really believe it? The more you believe that, the more you live, really live by faith. The more love you enjoy, the more joy you enjoy, the more peace you enjoy. Thirdly and finally, we have assurance before God. Not only assurance now, Ten years, ten years I had doubts about my salvation. It's a whole story in itself until the Lord sent John Greer to Newtown Square in Pennsylvania. Very patient with me, bore along with many hours of my doubts and questions. Until one day he said, John, it's not the question of whether or not you are good enough for Christ, but is Christ good enough for you? And my eyes were opened. I saw it. All I needed was Christ. It wasn't Christ plus some feeling, Christ plus something I would do or how I could live. It was just Christ. Assurance now. Assurance that we can walk with God and and go on from grace to grace and be changed by his grace. Not constantly doubting, but assurance for the future. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, he says at the end of verse 2, chapter 5. So you can have confidence, brothers, in the midst of your trials, however bad they might be. And you get an assurance when it comes time for you to leave this world. 
I am just forever. Blessed be his name. God read his word on our hearts.